this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In today's episode of the podcast, I talk to science misconceptions guru, Dr. Nikki Kaiser. Nikki currently works as a chemistry teacher and assistant head teacher at Notre Dame High School in Norwich and is the director of the Norwich Research School. In our conversation, we hear about Nikki's science career and how misconceptions have affected her in her own science journey. And we dig into the common problems students face in the 11 to 18 science curriculum. Nikki also shares with us the unique radar framework developed by the Education Endowment Foundation and explains how teachers should use it effectively. I hope you get a lot of value out of this essential instalment of the podcast. So without further ado, it's time to hear Nikki Kaiser's View from the Lab. Morning. Hello. Oh, it's afternoon. It's afternoon. <laughs> you, losing sense of time. It's good to see you, Nikki. Uh, really nice that you could you could uh, uh, come and see us today. For context, we're recording this in uh, what was it? Last day of August, so just before the autumn term starts. Um, and I'm just having a chat to, today, to Nikki about things. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> Being in school today, so it's all started. I think people are already yeah. up. Uh, it's yeah. the first day, first day back in school. So. Um, let's get started and just get a bit of context for you in terms of um, kind of your current current role and, and what you've been doing recently in the science education sphere. So I know you work in obviously work in schools, but also you've been working on some interesting projects last was it last year or last couple of years. Can you tell us a bit about where you are and what you've been up to? Yeah, well, today is um, officially my last day at the Education Endowment Foundation, the EEF where I've been seconded for the last 18 months part-time as their um, science content specialist. But I would say primarily I am a chemistry teacher. So I'm a chemistry teacher. I have been for about 15 years now. Um, I'm also, as you said, um, uh, an associate assistant head teacher this year. That just means it's temporary for two years and it's tied to my other role within school, which is the um, director of Norwich Research School. Our school is a research school and, and I'm the director there. So um, really, I'm, as I say, primarily a chemistry teacher, but over the last um, four or five years or so, I've been doing a lot more with trying to help other teachers to use and apply research to their teaching. Um, so as well as being involved with the EEF for the last 18 months or so, I've also been working with the research school um, within our school. So when you say a research school, some people may not have heard of what, what a research school is. Does that mean there's um, is there one per county or is there, what, is there a few regional ones? Um, can you give us a bit of context about research schools? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's a network of schools that are overseen by um, the EEF, by the Education Endowment Foundation. <clears throat> um, they were set up under the premise that um, research use is a, a social activity, you know, and um, that um, schools listen to other schools and teachers listen to other teachers. And the idea was that well, is that research schools um, are set up to help other schools, other teachers, other leaders to apply research to their teaching and, and their schools um, more generally. So although they are called research schools, we don't primarily carry out research. Some, some research schools are actually very good and, and are very kind of at the forefront of, of doing various research studies, um, but that's not their, their primary focus. It's, it's about the use of, of research and so on. Um, they started off with 
five research schools, I think in 2016, uh, places like Huntington, where um, Alex Quigley was um, the director of, of the research school there. It then expanded when we joined in 2017. Um, and I think there were um, Oh gosh, twenty odd schools then, um, and twelve of those came from the um, the opportunity areas. And now I should know the number there are, but I think there's you know at least thirty of them now. And it's a network of schools that work with the EF within England to 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 work with other schools and help them to use research. I see. So kind of uh, kind of a pragmatic approach to you know applying that research into into that real real life context, as it were. Yeah. Well, I think that. Um, the one thing, I mean, I was actually talking about this the other day that I actually come from a research background. So I have a PhD, um, I have a postdoc. Um, so, and they were both full-time occupations, you know, because research is is all consuming and it has to be, you need to read it, you need to dig underneath it, you need to apply it, you need to evaluate it and so on. Um, and so it's it's really a, a kind of recognition that, that teachers are, are the people that are actually going to use this but they don't have um the time the headspace you know as well as teaching full-time to do all of this so a lot of what the EF does is to make this research not simplify it but to just make it more accessible so things like the improving secondary science guidance report was there specifically as a teacher facing report that takes you know, an overview of the, the best kind of scientific research out or the best research into science teaching and distills it into key messages and into applications. Because, you know, teachers, I, I spend a lot of time reading research and have done, and but, but it's in on top of everything else that you have to do as a teacher. So it's, it's ways of trying to make it more accessible and that's a very I mean that in a very broad sense um, more available more understandable more applicable and and so on okay um thinking about your your own kind of uh, beyond science and I, I assume you've obviously you've had a um a very specific science career you studied chemistry at university I believe what was it when you were at school that really kind of turned you on to science was was it the subject you loved anyway or was it a, was it a teacher was it someone on tv what was the first thing that kind of pushed you to, to, to kind of follow that science route before we talk about the teaching? Um, I'm afraid I'm not going to give you the answer that you probably want no. to hear. In <laughs> I, I never thought I would do science. I wasn't particularly interested in science at school. I, I did a lot of music. In fact, I used to travel up to London each Saturday to go to the Royal College of Music. I was studying flute and piano and singing. Um, as far as I was concerned, I was going to do music, but I <laughs> luckily did kind of have a, a vague interest in science and I had a, a really good teacher, um, Mr. Smith, I, I still remember him very vividly, who I think he understood that I didn't come to science like thinking I, it's funny, people talk about identity all the time, don't they, that people see themselves as, I didn't see myself as a scientist, I saw myself as a musician, I saw myself as someone who liked writing stories and doing things like that. Um, and I think he realised that and he had no assumptions that I would come and just be automatically um, interested in, and and so as a and, and not just me I mean as a class you know he found bits about all of us that that kind of drew us into the lesson which for me shows 
how important it is not just to be a really good scientist and have a really good depth of knowledge and to really help people understand things, which he did, but also to really understand the pupils that you teach and to really kind of develop those, you know, relationships that you have within the classroom. He knew I like music, so we used to just throw in music um, references and questions every now and then, and that drew me in. And I'm, and to be honest, I studied chemistry A-level because I wanted to be a doctor. I'm one of those people, you know, we always have them in every single A-level class and, and then changed my mind um, and just chose chemistry because it seemed like a, something that would give me lots of options to do things later. So the love of it, I think, came later when I studied my PhD and I was able to study an area that I was really interested in. Again, somebody kind of suggested this particular area because they knew me. Um, and it was all kind of around atmospheric chemistry and environmental chemistry and so on. And, and that's where I really got drew into chemistry, drawn into chemistry. And that was where I, I believe, I think you said, you've, you know, I've seen you speak before you, when we talk, obviously this podcast is about misconceptions and you talk about when you, when you went from your chemistry degree, I think it was to start your PhD. And then there was a, quite a general question about biology, I think, um, which kind of, uh, exposed us but I, I, I guess some of your um, um, uh, what's the word uh, mis misconceptions misconceptions <laughs> on this particular area so could you just tell us quickly about what happened when you're was it a professor or uh, somebody asked you a question about uh, the, the PhD what can you explain yeah it was even worse than that it wasn't my PhD it was my postdoc so oh, I just okay. this was a job I'd been employed uh, after my PhD so so it was a bit of a a change in direction. My, my PhD was in chemistry um, and I applied for a postdoc um, and this is a story I often tell pupils as I teach them if you have a really good scientific grounding actually it gives you a really good grounding for all sorts of things you don't have to stay within the area that you're in you know science is science and it's such a broad subject and so I my postdoc my official title was I was doing marine biogeochemistry. So it was looking at the way that the oceans um, interacted with the atmosphere. It was looking at, um, but, but it was looking at it through um, gas exchange involving um, phytoplankton. So what it was actually looking at was uh, something called P to R ratios, production to restoration uh, ratios. Um, it was all about, um, <laughs> really how much carbon dioxide was taken up by phytoplankton compared to how much was uh, released. Um, so bearing in mind that I, I was going to be a postdoc, I was going to be kind of helping responsible for PhD students on cruises and so on, all, all who came with a marine biology background and, and my, yeah, my supervisor, my boss kind of said on the first day, well, you know, you know all about photosynthesis and respiration don't you and I said oh yes 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 plants carry out photosynthesis and animals respire <laughs> she just looked at me with complete horror and and I I think I've talked about this a few times you know since especially recently and I I, I know that deep down I, I knew that plants respired <laughs> as well but for me this really uncovers the the you know the the shakiness actually of 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 knowledge sometimes that that you have to keep re-examining things you know it's like languages to a certain extent i'm i was fluent in french i used to you know i did french a level and i was fluent and but unless you keep using that language 
then it doesn't become something that's there ready to use. And this was an idea that I knew deep down, but I, I wasn't thinking deeply. I was just talking. And I, I think that's a big lesson for me, actually, as a teacher, that you you just can't assume anything as a given. You have to keep kind of going back and nudging and reminding and, and probing and so on. Definitely. I think uh, what's what science te has definitely taught me is is um, when you are trying to explain something is about clarifying exactly what, what you mean about it. So uh, and questioning what what's the you know the learner thinks it means to them, because I think often in teaching or any, any kind of walk of life where you're trying to explain something, um, there's often a different picture in the person's mind compared to, to your special, definitely if you're a specialist's mind. And it's making sure you're, you're kind of taking that position of the uh, of the learner and kind of working from from first principles so you did some postdoc work um i assume you did that for a little while did you what, what made you kind of move into kind of the educational sphere was that a few years later or how did that kind of transition happen what were the, what were the drivers of that well i think if i'm honest i always suspected that i would be a teacher that i would become a teacher my dad was a teacher um and uh, my sister is a teacher and by the time I became a teacher she'd been teaching for you know a good 10 years or so. I used to teach English as a foreign language during holidays. I, I lived in Hastings when I was growing up that was you know a big industry for, for students. It funded me through university. I, I love teaching and um, but my dad kind of said to me you know it's brilliant do be a teacher if that's what you want to do but just do some other things first you know he, he just said just just see you know and so I just thought well you know I'll just see where it takes me I'll, you know the PhD kind of happened and that was lovely and then I saw this job for a marine scientist that was going to see twice a year that looked quite exciting you know I never really had this grand plan but I just found that I the things that I enjoyed about my postdoc became much more about the people the teamwork the outreach side of it you know and um and I just realized that I wanted to do something that was a bit more people focused I guess um so as I say I felt like I was just fulfilling the destiny that I always assumed that I would fulfill anyway um and and at for various other reasons I was moving to Norwich at the time so yeah at, at that point I made the switch and did a PGCE. I see and um, in those first few years of teaching first couple of years um, uh, I think that's a, that's a period obviously uh, uh, very um, quick le quick learning I guess you know in terms of you're, ma you're making lots of mistakes very quickly um, uh, and learning very quickly for, for that reason but um, can you reflect on those couple of years and and what is there any kind of mistakes you, you kind of stick out to you and think oh, I, sh I should never do that again or what are things that stick out in your mind when when you know when you're trying to learn that craft um that, that kind of you still hold with you today as it were any memories from that those early teaching days yeah I think that there's a couple of things that that stayed with me in the early days that the first thing was that my if, if you remember I'd already taught I, I taught English to um, to a range of people. The thing about teaching English as a, a foreign language is that you might be teaching, you know, some of the time I was teaching Polish teenagers and some of the time I was teaching Russian businessmen. And, and it was, 
it was really hard because I was untrained and some days I would be really upset about how difficult it was and I remember my dad saying to me you know because I said I remember saying at the time I you know I thought I'd be a teacher and actually I don't think I'm cut out to be a teacher and he said no it's different it's different when you train teaching is something that you can learn to do and he said he just said to me over and over again don't worry teaching is much different when you are trained when you learn how to do it and that's so that was the first thing that stuck with me and the other thing was my sister because I just remember working every evening and nearly all of every weekend during my NQT year no during my PGCE and probably into my NQT year as well and and she kind of there were two things she said that the first thing is start each lesson with a clean slate every time you walk in it's a new lesson you don't go in remembering oh so and so gave me such a hard time last time or I gave so and so such a hard time last time you go in start again you know new but she also said you know you cannot be perfect all the time sometimes you just have to be good enough you know if you are still perfecting a powerpoint at midnight the day before you're going to teach it that is the time to walk away probably three hours four hours before that but definitely at midnight you know um and it's it's the consistency not perfection i think that that we need to to learn and then you know other things um around behavior i, I think you know the main thing i've learned is I, that that never really felt like an issue for me so much I don't know why maybe coming into it a bit later but there, there's something around being really really you know firm about the fact that you care about your pupils and you can say that over and over again and you can say that you care about them you care about them learning you care about them getting to you know and I'll often say you know I don't actually care if you have a wonderful time in this lesson or not I, I want you to but what I'm most concerned about is that you get to the end of this year and you've done the best that you can and, and perhaps more importantly that the person next to you has done as well as they can and they're able to do it so I'm more concerned about keeping the dynamics you know really kind of focused and so on and um, so there's that kind of caring firmness knowing where the boundaries are knowing your routines getting those established and then then you can start to do the exciting things uh after that maybe and have you switched between schools you've been in the same school since you've been in Norwich or have you moved to a couple of places yeah and I've taught in a few schools um well there were two during my PGC placement but then I I worked in a school um in just over the border in Suffolk actually and uh then one uh just outside Norwich and and then I've been at my school uh gosh I've been there for eight or nine years now it must be so yeah it's a Good place to be okay. yeah um so thinking about obviously you, you did teaching for a while and then um uh, you had this opportunity to work with the EEF foundation uh was that something you pursued yourself or just you, you'd seen an opportunity and you thought oh, that sounds it's kind of quite a nice um marriage between you know the practicality and and, and the kind of theoretical side of things I guess how did that come about well, again, I, I'm afraid I don't have a really kind of I, the story of my life, really. And I say this to pupils quite often, is that if you do things that you enjoy, 
you'll end up doing things you enjoy doing and it sounds really but but you know and they're trying to choose a levels and things like that and and you just I, I often say well will you enjoy doing that you know if, you, if you're choosing something that you really I'd, I'd love it if you do chemistry do you enjoy it I mean sometimes mm -hmm. it's not the chemistry you enjoy you know like me I took it because I wanted to do something else and that but generally you know do things you enjoy and then it's so so all of this stuff happened because you know my PhD looked like something I'd enjoy my postdoc I just saw an advert that looked like something I'd enjoy um and then started teaching and and I just taught for a few years you know survival teaching is all about survival for a few years and until you know you begin to kind of bring your head above water a little bit and and it was just as I I actually I've had free maternity leave since I started teaching and while I was on my third one I just started to um, read a bit more read a bit more education research UEA chemistry department um, has a really strong um, chemical education and you know chemical education research um, based there they have people like Professor Simon Lancaster who was doing a lot of um, work at the time and he's, he talks about it a lot on Twitter so he was like an original contact that I, I started to think about the research behind what I was doing and, and so he was kind of my way in to really start thinking about this stuff and then this was around 2013-14 and, and there was a lot going on at the time that was when Research Ed started well I could never get to any of the conferences because I had a baby but I um, started to see the tweets about it and I learned quite a lot that way um, and I started to read some blogs that really changed the way I was thinking I, I was talking about the other day actually David Dydow wrote one about um, you know about desirable difficulties which was something I hadn't come across before and then at the same time Rob Coe was um, he published and was talking around the um, what makes great teaching report and, and I just started to get this really fundamental shift and then at the same time I say I was reading about really kind of pure chemistry research at the same time so I was just reading and reading and reading um, thinking about I've, I've discovered this thing called threshold concepts which I found really interesting um, which took me into a whole kind of rabbit hole of, of research and reading and blogging around um, you know understanding whether students actually understand what they're learning or whether they're just getting the answer right and how you can discover that and then into misconceptions around bonding and and how how you might teach that a bit more effectively and so on so this was all kind of stuff I was doing in my spare time really and then I started to kind of put the odd blog in the bulletin I asked if I could at school started a journal club and that again was all in my spare time and then eventually went to the head. This was back in 2015, 16, before this was really a big thing and said, look, I, is there any way I can do this as a as a job, you know, within my role? And they gave me a bit of time to do it. And then during that wrote a proposal to become a research school. And then it all just kind of it was wonderful just mushrooms but I was you know working in the research school for the EF I was involved with the science, secondary science guidance report uh, on the panel for that I was doing some research projects and supported by the chemical educational research group at the RSC and doing some other stuff with the RSC and and then content specialist and, and so it's just been this amazing absorbing journey but 
but one that I never particularly went looking for, which makes it even lovelier because you just, you know, you find yourself doing things that you enjoy. So, yeah, no clear cut answer. Sorry. <laughs> it's that kind of, it seems like it happened naturally and it kind of grew from, grew nice. from there and, and, and that was where, where it all blossomed as, as it were. I mean, the main um, kind of focus of this this, uh, this episode is, is thinking about misconceptions. Now, when I wrote this question down, I thought this is actually quite a, quite a difficult question to answer, but I was going to ask you anyway, but um, what is, how do you define what a misconception is? Because I don't know if there is, a, maybe there's not a definite, uh, a, a kind of specific one. What do you think about misconceptions? Yeah, it's not a straightforward question, and I don't think there is a straightforward answer, and I don't think you'll get two people that particularly agree on it as far as I can tell and and it's something that some people are very you know fiercely believe something or other or believe that something isn't true um for me it's an umbrella term really of um anything that any kind of belief uh, or idea that that a child holds that's going to inhibit or make it more difficult to understand more complex ideas but I really do see it as an umbrella term and and I think sometimes you know misconceptions overlap with just misunderstandings Carol Kenrick did a really nice talk for chat physics I think it was about you know what the difference might be between them um but I, I do think you know there are those naive preconceptions that people have you know we look at the world around us and, and it's flat right so you know how can we live on a, a on a and on the earth that, that isn't flat or you know we see the sun apparently moving across the sky I mean they're really kind of you know simple ones there but but there are all sorts of ideas that we we kind of get from the world around us so that's before we've even said anything as, as teachers or before they've met anything um and then there's alternative conceptions that people are very you know some people really strongly believe we should be talking about alternative conceptions because science actually is is just a series of models isn't it that you become more and more that are that do become more sophisticated as we learn more and, and so on but so so I think you know you could say misconceptions are ideas that children have that don't align with the science that they learn at school if you want to, you know but it, it's basically these ideas that yeah, that don't align with what you learn at school that are going to hinder more complex understanding. But I do think it encompasses all sorts of, of different ideas. Almost kind of, um, if you get a misconception at that stage, as you're saying, the you can't really move on to the next step if you're still holding this this old this other belief, I guess, in terms of how something works or something operates, um, because you're going to get difficulties later on. Yeah, I think, and and that's something that we've all seen as teachers, right? I mean, <clears throat> sometimes, um, a a talk, you know, year twelves when they first start doing A level, they they can be really tricky nuts to crack sometimes in terms of this because if you have basically, you know, because it, it's very easy to get to a right answer without really understanding how you got there. I, the, I've given the analogy before with my chemistry degree, I got phenomenal marks for my first and second year exams because I learned everything off by heart. I was getting 98, 99% in things because I had, I've got the kind of mind where I can learn things off by heart. Organic chemistry, for example, I just didn't understand it at all. And yet here I was kind of learning all these things. And it's only later when I kind of 
dug underneath it and really had to kind of let everything go and start again um that I began to really understand I think that's the same with A-level students sometimes that they've they've passed their GCSE you know often they've done this accelerated triple science which I have various opinions on but they've rushed through everything and so their survival mechanism is just to find a way of getting through of learning what they need to learn and and sometimes they get there without really completely understanding everything underneath it and so sometimes as an A-level teacher you actually have to strip some of that away um, and get them to to really question what they understand and why they understand things and why they think they do they understand things they do and that can be a really tricky thing for them to do and I, I really understand that because to let go of those things that have helped you get there and and to to kind of be cut loose is, is quite a tricky thing to do but but you have to otherwise you, you won't be able to progress progress further and that was the next thing. I mean, how do you think you talked a lot about um, hinge questions? How can hinge question? Could you explain what a hinge question is and how that, those might be used to to help um, identifying misconceptions? Yeah, my understanding of them is that they are usually a very they have to be a very short question, um, a very um, a, a point in the lesson where you do want to check, you know, that this kind of basis is there before you move on and 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 so they are a good point actually to to um what's the word to use red herrings that that in, include misconceptions and to see um how many people kind of hold them and and try and uncover them what i would say i think they are a really useful quick check and they're a really useful quick check to kind of see if you're going in the right direction before you move on but i would also and, and also to pick up on those misconceptions but I would also say they're only one thing in like an armory of um, feedback and assessment and, and so on, because you're just getting a snapshot that you need to dig deeper after that. And, and, and um, but yeah, they're a really useful way to just flag up those those misconceptions that you might not pick up on otherwise or to see if anyone's still holding them, I guess. Kind of quick um, pit stops along along the way. Um, in terms of other things you've written, in terms of I'm going to feel like a bit of a quiz master here, but you've, you've also spoken about um, uh, that learning is liminal. Could you explain what lim what that means to you? What's liminal learning, and how, what's its application to the, the classroom? Well, I guess that's very much what I was talking about before in terms of the year 12s on I mean that's it on you know <laughs> and how that's a really extreme version of it. Um, but it's the idea that to move on to to really understand something it, it it's talked about in the the arena of threshold com concepts and you know threshold concepts are um, something that I found as a really useful concept to think about how people understand things or don't they're, they're supposed to be these ideas that fundamentally change the way that you think about something and once you understand these threshold concepts then you know a whole host of other things it's a portal to new understanding and, and you can understand more so you know once you understand gravity if you hold a pen and let go of it you know that it will drop downwards if you're standing on earth and you know everything else being equal and so on but it, so the idea is that there are these thresholds that learners or pupils or children have to pass through in order to understand something fully and 
some of these ideas are really tricky you know that they, they often conflict with those naive preconceptions that they had um, and often they have to let go of previously held ideas um, and so it's not something that they necessarily do very easily and, and we'll all have had an experience of that in in teaching where you know you you think oh, they, they got this last week and then they, it doesn't and, and then you have to kind of keep nudging and sometimes it can take quite a few steps to kind of get to the point where, where someone understands something and and so in this kind of area of research people talk about um this liminal space where um your you know progress is messy and there's as many steps backwards as there are forwards um and um, one of the analogies that um, I've seen used is the idea of um, adolescence, where you're you're not quite an adult and you're not still a child. And there's this point where sometimes you're quite childlike and sometimes you're kind of getting into adulthood. Or bereavement is another analogy I've heard about where, you know, you, you just think you're moving forwards and then something sets you back. And anyone that's been through that process will will understand that. And and so learning, I, I think as a teacher, how that helps me is, is again, what I've said before, that it's just never assuming that it's job done, you know, that you, you're always digging under, you're always just checking, you're always just nudging, reviewing things and 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 not not always just taking the first answer that you hear from someone, you know, try, trying to ask them why, because it's very easy to, to kind of come up with an answer. Um, and also just helping, understanding that um, learning can be, you know, this tricky process for everyone. It can feel frustrating for us and for, for the children, and um, but actually it can be wonderful as well. But, you know, just understanding that that support that's kind of needed to get there. So it was, it was quite a useful kind of area of, of reading I did um, a few years ago, I think. It's quite it's quite interesting um, as a as a former chemistry teacher. I remember you saying that um, there's this uh, slight like problem in terms of chemistry in in that often students have this model between the ages of um, six and twelve that's hard to shift. I guess he's talking about the particle model and kind of maybe the the spheres fitting together and adding together, etc. And they can't or they find it very difficult to move past that to to move on to harder ideas. I guess things like chemical equilibrium and all the rest of it. Um, is there any particular reason for that or, or is, I mean it's difficult to say I suppose but um, why do you think the students get stuck at that time and they, and they just can't move past the kind of uh, yeah I those, don't know sort of I know the one it, there's a paper by um, I think Christopher Horton and he talks about this about how um, you know basically there are ideas that are formed at what we'd you know primary school I think I think he's American but anyway what we would as, as primary school that are then very very difficult to overcome and and to the point where I think from memory they then some of these really ingrained misconceptions are still there in kind of graduates and postgraduates and, and so on um I what do I take from it as a teacher I take from it what I said actually right at the start with my brilliant respiration misconception that you know it's just a process of kind of nudging and reviewing and and digging underneath and and 
yet sometimes there will these these ideas are really really pervasive but what what we're lucky about in science is that there's been a tremendous amount of research into what these misconceptions are you know if you if you're a chemistry teacher you are spoiled actually physics as well is true the iop website that their spark pages and so on but the rsc website for chemistry and i'm sure there's an equivalent in biology it's just i don't have as much experience of it but you know, RSC have loads and loads of resources from Keith Tabor where you can just, you know, there are questions, true and false questions that I use all the time that, that he's written and, and books about it. And so we know what these are. And so I think it's just having them in the back of your mind as you teach. Sometimes you don't have to be really, really explicit and overt about it, about, you know, if you think this is or, or however you choose. But but as a teacher, just having that in the back of your mind that, oh, they might be thinking this. So I'm going to have to make sure I I'm really careful not to say this. Or so, for example, with ions um, that I was talking about, you know, that I got a bit obsessed with. <laughs> For a while, I, it was just the knowledge that you know, if you're not careful, that that students will see um, ions of these circular things with a charge in the right top right-hand corner, because that's how we draw an adopt and cross diagram, and not as you know spherical or with you know charge that's kind of uniform, you know, throughout and so on. Um, if you don't have that in the back of your mind, then you won't reinforce you know so now as i teach ions and i show dot and cross diagrams i'm really kind of saying but remember this is representing what this is representing and it's not this and it's not i'll have the you know all those models that we have with like um you know i have those 3d models and say you know this represents this inside this and i'll start from those pictures and those ideas from the start so it's not necessarily about things you do or say or but but just having that knowledge there as you go in will I think help you to anticipate this and and um and just be really careful sometimes about the way you say things could you tell us about the radar framework and how teachers could use it because you were involved in 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 the setting up of, of that is that correct yeah so when I was working for the EEF over the last um year and a half um I you know, my project or my job was to um, support teachers to um, apply a particular aspect of the um, secondary science guidance report. Um, and I started with misconceptions because it's the number one recommendation. And for me, it's it's so integral to science teaching because it, it there's something there about, you know, content knowledge because I think as a teacher, uh, I have misconceptions and, and uh, one of the most helpful things I did during that placement was to read a book on primary science misconceptions and realise how many primary science misconceptions I held, you know, so that there is something about giving teachers the confidence to really dig underneath their own subject knowledge. But there's also what I was saying about, you know, anticipating um, and then diagnosing and addressing um, misconceptions and then I think reviewing them later because again one of the things I'm really I was really keen to support was this idea of the fact that you cannot assume it's a job done and you might you know if, if even if pupils understand something when you teach it you probably have to come back and, and review it and and there'll be points later on you know ions that I'm talking about when you do ionic bonding when you come to do electrolysis for example you need to 
to just look back again and check that they 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 do understand what a sulfated ion, you know, the characteristics and so on. And and then even when you do things like you know drinking water, potable water and stuff later on, there's all these connections that as a teacher you make inside your head because it's obvious to you that they're all connected. That sometimes it can be really useful to um, make for for the pupils you're teaching, but also to make sure they understand it before they move on and so on. So what I wanted to do was create some kind of framework that would help teachers to do that to anticipate misconceptions before they even start to teach something to look up what they might be to think of how they were going to uncover those misconceptions that that pupils might hold and then to um, review them later um, and so yeah that that's what the radar framework was was set up and I, I it was called a radar framework because I decided I was gonna come up with an acronym which felt incredibly cringy at the time but actually it was the best thing I did really I think because it's just so easy to say but it's research and anticipate so before the lesson and then diagnose and address so that's what you do at the time and then what was it assess and review so there's something about kind of checking for for understanding later um, and so, yeah, there are two versions of it on the ES website, either one with kind of prompt questions in or just one that you can kind of download and scroll all over um, and make your own notes. So it's um, so radar is, is double A, isn't it? It's R-A-A-D-A-R, -A -A -A, is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. See, okay. uh, yeah, please do check, check that out um, if you get an opportunity to slide that into your favourite search engine and find that. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you, changing tack slightly, was just, just about science teaching generally. I've asked my guests, you know, um, their thoughts on A, why is it difficult to recruit science teachers sometimes? And B, why is it difficult to keep hold of them sometimes? Any thoughts on just the science teaching as a profession and the kind of challenges it, it, it's got, specific, you know, particularly in England where you teach? Yeah, I mean, it, it is challenging. Teaching is challenging. It's, it's um, there's a challenge of subject knowledge and, you know, pedagogical content knowledge and pedagogical knowledge and, and behaviour and, and so on and, and the workload and, and, and I think at the moment it's really difficult to speak about it at all without you know talking about the last 18 months where teachers have been absolutely on their knees um, but even in normal times it's a you know it's, it's an all-encompassing profession and I think one of the things is that it's very difficult when I was talking about, you know, sometimes good enough is good enough. The reason that we're not very good at just stopping at good enough is because ultimately we're responsible for other human beings and we want everything to be perfect for them. And if you don't have that, so, so there's the responsibility around, you know, for other people and, and so on. And so there's all sorts of reasons that it's um, really felt, you know, absorbing. And it's not like when you I have done other jobs where actually you can turn up and just have a bit of an off day and, and make up for it on another day. If you have an off day in teaching, that could mean that a lesson goes completely down the pan, that you end up with some kind of you know situation even if it's just someone being a bit chatty in a classroom that you know there's also you can't go in and just have a bad day in teaching there's no so I, I can see why people find it it tough I think in terms of like retaining them there's a reason that I've stayed 
in my school as long as I have. And, and I'm not someone, as you probably gathered, that would stay around <laughs> if I wasn't enjoying something. You know, there is something about looking after your staff. And, um, and one thing that my school have always been really good at is, you know, valuing their staff, being really conscious about workload, um, giving staff opportunities um, and, and just other things that I, you know, I, I could go into. There are lots of examples I could give where I know that my school has looked after, you know, and I can only talk for myself, but me and people that I know, you know, in a way that I know in some schools doesn't happen. And, and so I think as leaders, you know, and now I'm I've stepped into leadership for um, the next couple of years. It's something that we really have to be aware of because, you know, it, going back to the EEF, um, they they will tell you that the most, you know, the most difference, the things that we can do that make the most difference to the pupils that we teach happen in the classroom. And, and so our teachers and our support staff and all those people that support teaching, so not necessarily the, the people facing teachers, but all of those people that go into supporting teaching and teachers and pupils and staff within a school, they are a school's most important resource and they're what are ultimately going to help those, those pupils most. And, and so I think that's what we have to kind of keep in the back of our mind that we if, if teachers are going to do the best that they can, they will do that best in, in a supportive environment. And it's, it's, yeah, it's something that I'm going to try and hold on to, I think. So talking about supporting and kind of inspiring teachers, um, uh, is there any kind of, um, sorry, is there any people you recommend in, let's say, let's say Twitter, I know other than your good self, I know you're on Twitter, um, that gets uh, get, gives you inspiration. Are, are there two or three people you'd say would be good to follow for the science uh, teachers, and why do you follow them? Oh right, well the, the first person I ever really followed. So Simon Lancaster was probably the first person I. He's professor at UEA, professor of chemistry. But actually, the first teacher, like um, school teacher, I followed was Dr. Christy Turner, who is just if you're a chemistry teacher, she is just a wealth of knowledge. She's also really, she will tell you exactly how it is. She's just a source of, she's a very experienced teacher. Um, and so she was my first person that I really kind of followed. And, and, and nowadays there's just so many of them and so I couldn't name, but what I will say is there are two groups that I think are really for me is it so, um, COGSISI is a group that I've been involved in. Um, and so I know that you, um, you had Adam Boxer on, you know, and, and, but, but just as a group, if you just kind of search, um, that as a, you know, there's lots of brilliant science teachers on there that just kind of chat and talk and, and are really kind of helpful to each other and also now the kind of chat chemistry chat physics chat biology um, are really good teams of science teachers I, the, the kind of generosity of time and spirit and sometimes resources and, and everything really that you get through twitter you if, if you if you treat it as as a you know as a place to to be polite and ask people and have conversations and not get drawn down too many rabbit holes it's it's just a, a lovely place to kind of get help and support so they would be the the three kind of areas i'd go or people or areas i'd go for first
Yeah, great recommendations. Unfortunately, our time has now come to an end, which means it's time for me to thank you for joining me on the podcast and hearing your view from the lab. Thank you very much, Nikki. Thanks ever so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nikki and all she had to share about the misconceptions in science and what we can do about challenging them in the classroom. Nikki is active on Twitter, so make sure you continue to follow her on that platform to see all her future work. If you know anyone who should be a guest on the podcast, please let me know by emailing me on andy.woods at pearson.com and we'll get the conversation started. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you on the next one.